The ripple effects from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday are being felt across the world. The U.S. government's now said it will ensure all SVB account holders will be able to retrieve any funds they have when they start their day today. A statement by the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve said the plan will ensure the resilience of the broader U.S. banking system. In the meantime, here in the U.K., HSBC has acquired Silicon Valley Bank U.K. for just one pound. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank sparked wider concern about the health of the banking system. But it also sparked a battle to buy its UK assets, which included loans of around £5.5 billion to more than 3,000 customers, many of them promising startups. Oak North Bank was one of the contenders to buy Silicon Valley Bank UK. In 2019, Oak North became the most valuable fintech company in Europe and one of the most valuable tech companies in the UK more generally, when it was valued at $2.8 billion in a fundraising led by the Japanese investor SoftBank. Since then, there have been some challenges, but the move for SVP showed its ambitions for the future. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Studies a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Rishi Kozler, the chief executive and co-founder of Oak North, about trying to buy SVP UK, founding Oak North, and what could come next for the business. So we were tracking the situation with SVB from Thursday evening, um, London time. Obviously, through Thursday and Friday, it became clear that there was a very stressed situation. We started thinking about what does this mean? Uh, obviously, understanding what the underlying fundamental problem was, you know, the securities book and, and, and the impacts of raising rates, etc. So to understand that whole piece and then start thinking about exactly that, like, like where, where is the opportunity? As, as we, we thought through that, had various conversations on Friday and um, which were, how can I put it, bolder than necessarily playing for SVB UK. And then Saturday morning, we we just did a step back, did a full like risk review on, on where we sat, right, on, on some of the key key areas and felt pretty confident on, on our position. Obviously, Friday night, the Bank of England took SVB UK into resolution and therefore on after we we've gone through that process on Saturday morning on actually just getting confident where our risk positions was, we decided to parameterize the downside to play for the upside, right? So we decided to actually become front footed and um, make a play uh, for SVB UK. We started interacting with officials, etc., and the process started. When you say officials, I mean, who, are you on the phone to Andrew Bailey? Are you on the phone to Jeremy Hunt? Who were the sort of people that were involved in that? Okay. I mean, we were, I'm, I'm not going to mention specific names, but we were on the phone with senior officials at uh, both uh, the Bank of England and Treasury. When you said there about a bolder play, I mean, was the, you obviously got a presence in the US. So were you interested in the US assets as well? It was a bolder play. Would it have been possible to take the whole business or were the specific parts of the US business that you thought were interesting? I mean, it, how can I put it? Going through that Friday, understanding actually what the business is, what the components look like, what the whole looks like, what components look like, 
when you play to all scenarios. Why did HSBC end up doing the deal and Oak North didn't? So I think the the very simple reason is HSBC being one of the largest banks in the world, having a balance sheet of whatever, $3 trillion, brings a certain stability and confidence level where SVB UK customers no longer question the stability and the survivability of the institution. Clearly, if the solution was SVB UK going to Oak North, we would still clearly require the Bank of England to provide a liquidity facility to us to sort of steady the the perception. You look at those two choices, one requires no real intervention, right, from, from the Bank of England um, and provides that confidence. And, and, and like we saw, as soon as that was announced, everyone was like, okay, that's normal, right? So I fully understand why it went that way. I would say that the opportunity to have been able to put SVB UK into Oak North, which ultimately Oak North was set up as the bank bank for entrepreneurs, by entrepreneurs. SVP is focused on growth companies in the tech and biotech spaces. You sort of say, we sort of lost an opportunity to create a champion for the British innovation economy. And actually putting SVB UK into HSBC is probably going to reduce the amount of funding for the innovation economy that the country has. So we're now about just over a week on. Do you look back now disappointed? I was disappointed that day, forget about a week on. Um, but again, as I said, I understood why the decision was made. But, um, but but clearly, I think, as I said, there was a missed opportunity. So so what now then? Has it got you thinking about what other opportunities? Has, has it made you think maybe be more aggressive about other opportunities that come up? We've so far done two two smaller transactions, right, in terms of corporate activity, one acquisition and one majority investment. And we're continually looking for businesses which fit our strategic goals. So we continue to do that. Does losing SVB UK make us more hungry? No. Does the current situation where there's so much dislocation in the market make us more active in looking for opportunities? Absolutely, because in times of dislocation, you generally have more opportunities than not. Why do you think HSBC ultimately will mean less funding for innovation? And what have small and medium-sized businesses potentially missed out on by North not being involved in that deal? Sure. So HSBC is obviously a very large business, right? If you think about it, in a $3 trillion balance sheet, whatever, five, five, six billion pounds, so call it you know, seven, seven billion dollars, worth of um, lending into sort of this, let's say the, the innovation economy, isn't going to change the way a, a bank with three trillion does business, right? Their processes, their approach, their risk appetite, etc., is all determined on a you know, predetermined basis, right? And if you look at one of the reasons why we set up Oak North, it was because HSBC failed to deliver for us as a growth company. It's sort of the the fact, and if you look at a number of the customers that we service today, um, most of them were banked by either HSBC, Lloyd's, Barclays, RBS, etc., before becoming Oak North customers. So there's clearly something which those banks fail at in terms of servicing growth companies, what we call the missing middle, and, and therefore putting the business high SVB, which is the most aligned with tech growth 
into a business which fundamentally doesn't deliver for growth companies is going to mean that yeah, you're going to lose a large part of actually what, what made SVB UK be able to support the innovation economy. Oak North says it's focused on helping the missing middle in the UK economy. That's businesses who are neither small nor large, but who make up the beating heart of the economy and are vital to its future. According to Oak North, these businesses struggle to get the help and loans they need from traditional banks. That's because these businesses are often growing at around 20% a year, and a traditional bank will only offer loans to it based on its previous and past performance. Oak North says it can offer finance because it uses its credit intelligence software to calculate the risks and opportunities associated with supporting the business. It has built a loan book of more than £4 billion, and Rishi Kozler says he got the idea for Oak North when building his previous business, Copal, which offered research to investment banks. When we were building our previous business, Copal, we went to, like I mentioned, we went to HSBC, we went to one other commercial bank for a very small line of credit. We weren't given, we weren't given anything. A few months later, we, we went to the institutional desk of one of our investment banking clients and they gave us a um, hundred times the amount of debt that the commercial banks were willing to give us. And that's when we realized there's just such a massive difference in the way that large cap institutional lenders view the world versus how commercial banks were operating in sort of this missing middle. So that was back in 2005, um, 2006. And as we continued to build the business, we met many, many other entrepreneurs and all of them had almost universally undelightful experiences with the commercial banks, right? And therefore, we just we started to build a whole picture in our minds about actually, yeah, it's a structural need. It's a large need and it applies in pretty much every market we've been to. Our previous business, we used to operate in 14 different markets. So, so we had a pretty good sense in terms of countries. So a pretty good sense of, of sort of like the fact that this is an unsolved problem. And because our last business was a financial analytics business, where we supported many of those institutional credit investors, as well as investment banks, fixed income divisions and the like, we said to ourselves, we've got a pretty good sense on how to actually conduct proper financial credit analysis for large cap companies. So how do we take that and how do we use technology and apply that all down to smaller companies at incredibly efficient scale? Rishi Kozler set up his first business when he was still in his 20s. He had previously worked for ABN Ambro, GE Capital, and handled venture capital investments for Lakshmi Mittal. He co-founded Copal alongside his friend, Joel Perlman. The business offered research to investment banks using graduates in India. However, the early days of being an entrepreneur were tough. The very early days of building Copal. Um, so we started the business in, if I remember, November 2002. So the first two, two, two years or so, those were incredibly tough. And I would say that actually a number of people, like I, like I often say, year two revenue was lower than the salary I was used to taking before before setting up the business, right? So a number of people around me asking 
by year two, like, what am I doing? Like, why we continue? You should throw in the towel. But as, as I often say, the, as an entrepreneur, you can only have a plan A. You can't have a plan B. Because as soon as you have a plan B, you're willing to give up. And as soon as you're willing to give up, you've lost the game. So why, why did you continue? Just a, a belief in what you were Total doing? Total belief. Total conviction. What was the turning point? The turning point is always getting revenue. <laughs> getting revenue, getting clients, and, 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 getting, and getting clients to scale. I wanted to ask you about who you've learned from because you've got your career up to that point involved crossing paths with, if I'm right, Jack Welsh and Lashish Mittal. So with Jack Welsh, I think for G, you were pitching ideas to him. Is that right? For, yep. for G Capital in the UK. Yep. So what was that like? That was, that was amazing. I was 23 years old, sitting opposite Jack Welsh. We pitched the idea, a colleague of mine and myself set up an early stage venture fund for GE, separate to their private equity business. It wasn't UK specific, it was actually Europe, US. And his words were, done, you've got $25 million, go and spend it and don't ask anyone and come back and see me once you've spent it. And that was pretty cool. Could you just explain why you then made the jump into entrepreneurship? Because you talked about then that your salary was below, yep. uh, two years on, your salary, your money premium, yep. sorry, was below your yep. salary. So what made you make that decision? I think I've always had a very strong drive to build businesses. And I've probably had that drive since I was six or seven years old. It's been something which I've always viewed as, as, as what I want to do. Additionally, when I was venture investing, when you look around and you look at the smallest venture investors, many of them have built businesses, right? And, and they've actually been through it. They lived through it. So therefore, you can assist in a totally different way. So you combine those things. For me, it was, it was just a question of when, not if. And after, sort of, if, if you go through, obviously, the, the dot-com bust, 2001, you go through what was happening in, in the steel industry in terms of steel cycle at that point in time as well. 2002 just followed for like a very natural time for me to say, actually, you know what? Now isn't a bad time to go and do this. Was it easier second time around? No, it was different. I wouldn't say it's easier. That's I would say... I would say, look, the first time round, it's really interesting. Um, the first time round, it's, it's about survival. You switched off your income and you've put all your savings into your business. So it's sort of like do that equation, right? You stop making money and you take what you have and you put it in your business and you basically have no reserve, right? So at that point, it's sort of like there is no plan B. Well, guess what? There's, like, there's nothing behind you. You have to. It's like you want to eat. You have to make it work, right? Now, clearly, both John and I had our families behind us, right? So we knew there was a safety net. And when I say families and parents, et cetera, so there was a, a, effectively a financial safety net where, oh, yeah, you've got a roof over your head and you've got food on the yeah. table. You go back to your family home. and you know. so, so you knew that you know, the downside wasn't that you're going to be on the street. That's with the first time. The second time around, you've, you've worked hard, you made some money, you sort of don't need to make the same sacrifices. But if you don't make the same sacrifices in terms of actually building, like putting in the hours, not throwing money at problems, actually just rolling up your sleeves. If you don't do that, you don't create the right DNA in an organization and arguably you don't create the right organization. So the decision to actually, and we went straight into building Oak North. It's not like we took time out in between. So the decision to go straight back in and, and build and, and again, work the crazy hours and the like versus saying, I'll just throw more money and I'll just hire more people. I'll just let someone else do it. I'll hire a consultant, et cetera. Like those things are just anathema to us. So, so 
doing that and sort of getting your head around, okay, we're back doing this. Yeah, just takes an adjustment period. One of the biggest questions facing Oak North today is will the business float on the stock market? And if it does so, will the business choose to float in London or choose to float in New York? That question looks particularly relevant today because the status of the City of London is being questioned after a collection of companies chose to list in New York rather than London. One of those companies is Arm, the Cambridge-based chip designer. Arm is owned by SoftBank, which is also a shareholder in Oak North. But a stock market listing is just one of the questions and one of the challenges facing Oak North. I don't know why people are obsessed like that, because I do get asked that too often. And I, and I always try to be evasive. So will we float Oak North? Probably. Where will we do it to be determined? Is, is there an issue with the UK? Do you share? There is. In, yeah, you do. There is an issue. I, I, we would love to be part of the solution on helping resolve the issue, but there is an issue. The issue is, is that you do not have an efficient market for growth companies because you have very few public market growth investors in this country, probably five or six, and that doesn't create an efficient market. And therefore, when you look at the valuation gap, which you get between the UK and US, it's very significant because the growth investors here don't feel like they have to pay for growth. You also have customers in the US and you have a shareholder in SoftBank who's just authorised the float of arm in the US and presumably shares your concerns on the UK. Well, I think... I think anyone who can read the data shares my, shares my concerns. Can I ask you about what, what it's been like since 2019, since SoftBank led that funding? Mm-hmm. Has it been more difficult than you thought since then as a business? Has having that valuation made you a target for criticism? Because there's been criticism of the fact that you've had more debt defaults. Uh, there's been some criticism from former staff and a higher turnover of staff. Has it been more difficult than you anticipated since 2019? So let's take let's take those points slightly out of turn, but I'll 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 address each one of them. So we've had more defaults. We've had fifteen defaults since we started the business seven and a half years ago. Show me one other lender who's got that type of track record. I would I would argue that puts us in the top decile globally. So do I think that the fact that we've got criticism that we've had fifteen defaults? I, again, I just sort of say look at the data. I don't think that's a reason for criticism. So that's on that point. SoftBank became an investor in 2019, and I would say that um, they've been incredibly supportive partner. I would say that they, they're they rigorous in terms of the type of information which they require from us, but they let us run the business totally. They, they're, a, they're a minority investor. They're not the largest shareholder in the business. They act and behave as another, any other minority investor. So having them in the in, in the shareholding has has only been positive for us right in terms of actually on a day-to-day basis when we've needed if we wanted some uh, some particular i don't know access to certain individuals certain companies etc they've been very facilitating okay you touched on the valuation point was the valuation we got in 2019 a good valuation for where we were yes have we grown very substantially since then? Do we make real money? Um, and when you look at the valuation on the context of like where where we are today, do we feel like that valuation has been a hindrance for us? Not at all. Not at all. Um, because we feel like, you know, we're, how can I put it? 
point in time, that was a good valuation, but, but the business has evolved so much since then. So the staff turnover, that's, that's an interesting point. I would say that there was a point in 2019 where we became, we built and, uh, you know, we built our whole, whole career on being incredibly disciplined uh, financially. And I would say the one negative which we got, we fell into after the SoftBank investment is that we became somewhat less disciplined for a short period of time, okay, fiscally. And still always highly profitable, but just a little bit less disciplined than we normally would. And we corrected that. We, we hired a lot of people, which we, we, over, we expanded too quickly and we had unstructured, undisciplined growth which never resulted in what we wanted to necessarily. So it was just undisciplined. And there was, and that created discontent among those, that group of staff that were let go. Yes. On um, the defaults, just quickly, most of it, all of it seems to be linked to property. Are, are you doing less property now than you were as you get bigger? Is that becoming a small proportion of the loan book? I mean, how much of the UK economy is linked to property? I'd be all of it. So, I mean, you know, a minimum, it depends on how you cut it at least 60 plus percent. So do you think you could be a supporter of businesses in this country and not touch property? It just doesn't, you know, it, the makeup of the economy is what the makeup of the economy is, right? So if we if we were sitting in Silicon Valley and you'd sort of, you know, have, have thousands of tech firms around you, it'd be different, right? But given we're building in the UK, supporting supporting entrepreneurs, property entrepreneurs, manufacturing entrepreneurs who ultimately lead into property, right? If you think, what are you manufacturing, right? If you're manufacturing life fittings, if you're manufacturing sort of, you know, I don't know what, um, flooring or whatever, doors, right? A lot of that, where does it end up? Ends up in in sort of buildings, right? And clearly there is a whole services economy, which we also support, right? Um, So I think that if you you look at our lending book, it's it's, uh, pretty represent, in the sectors we play in, pretty representative of the UK economy. The fact that we have had more defaults, predominantly most of our defaults in the property space is also in a way, because if you have defaults without property collateral and just cash flow lending, your recoverability generally is very low. With property, your recoverability is generally very high. Because there's an asset. Back. Because there's an asset, right? So if you go to a business which doesn't have any assets and you've just lent on the base of cash flow, right? And that goes into default. That's a pretty sad day. <laughs> With property, it's sort of like, you know, you'll make some recovery. So do I think that that's preferred? I think it's absolutely preferred that way around to have your defaulting loans ones with high collateral than not. Rishi Kozler has attracted attention and controversy for donating money to the Conservative Party. He's also been described as the head of an advisory council for the party. However, he's keen to set the record straight on this. I was never involved in an advisory council. I was a relatively modest donor for a period of time and I decided no longer to be a donor. And um, I'm, I'm in a way, um, how can I put it? reticent to continually have that label associated next to my name. Not that, I mean, I actually think if you go back to the last election, 
taking a political stance was somewhat important in, in, in my view as someone who represents British business, right? And is building a business to support British business. I think that in a, in a Corbyn world, British business was under threat and therefore taking a stance to actually help British business was in my view important, both personally, right? Because again, the, the donor aspect has always been on a personal basis. If you look at the current environment, I think we've got two very pragmatic sets of leadership representing the two main parties today. And therefore, I actually don't think politics is that important for British business, which I think is excellent. I think it's an amazing position to be in as a country in terms of someone who's just focused on building businesses and supporting businesses in this country. So I think that the association with, with with the Tories is something which was important at a time when it was polarizing. I don't think we're in that polarizing environment. And therefore, my interest in politics just is not there. I'm fundamentally an entrepreneur. I love supporting entrepreneurs, venture investing, supporting early stage entrepreneurs, building Oak North to support the missing middle growth companies to actually be able to scale their businesses, increase productivity, to be drivers of employment. I mean, it, through through what Oak North's done, our view is we've led to about 37,000 new jobs in this country. That's where we're excited. So frankly, I would, I would really uh, I look forward to the day that that former Tory donor label is just dropped. I also read that you, you did it, and correct me if this is wrong, for the interests of Oak North, that it was a pragmatic reason to ensure that you had a voice at the table, given that all the other big banks had a voice at the table and the challenger banks did. I mean, look, was there was there an aspect of, of, of having that voice? I mean, absolutely, because otherwise, who am I? Who are we, right? We're no one, right? And you look at the way the big banks have access to government generally, it's totally different. It's not like we needed anything from government. It was just very much, you want to boost competition. You've put in new legislation around it. It's like, we just want to remind you, you put new legislation around it and, 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 and in a way that, you know, people are doing something about it. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will also find news and analysis from the business world throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.